You're listening to Atomic Moms. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hi, everyone. I am so grateful to be back in my podcast studio. It feels like it's 100 degrees in here. It's like I'm going back to my Houston, like, swampy roots. It is so warm, and I am so grateful that my guest today, Leslie Ann Bruce, is sitting opposite me. She drove like two hours to spend this time with us. It was nothing. What? She's got two little kids back at home and we're in Laguna. Do you say Laguna or in Orange County? I say Laguna. Yeah. I feel like if you live in Orange County, you rarely refer to it as Orange County. Okay. Um, unless you're talking to people out of Orange County. <laughs> Which sounds obnoxious. <laughs> well, she's a best-selling co-author and an award-winning entertainment journalist, formerly of U.S. Weekly Magazine and The Hollywood Reporter. And the last time Leslie came on the podcast was May 22nd, 2018, and we talked Mama Overwhelm. Thank you so much for coming here today and sweating it out with our listeners. You have a brand new book. I'm very excited about it. It's called You Are a F. Star, C-K-I-N-G, Awesome Mom. And I'm going to read the subtitle carefully because when I read the back of your book, you mentioned to your editor that you were a little bit of a psycho about the subtitle. I really was. Okay, so here's the subtitle for everyone. So you are a effing or, you know, awesome mom. So embrace the chaos, get over the guilt, and be true to you. So Leslie, what was the hang up with the subtitle? Or what was the importance? How about that? We went back and forth a ridiculous amount over the concept of guilt. Because in the book, I talk in through all of my social and my social platforms, I talk about embracing guilt. So I think you can get over guilt while respecting guilt. But I didn't like the concept of like losing guilt or getting rid of the guilt. I would like to murder my guilt. Yeah, yes. Yes, but I also, here's what I think. I think that we're never going to get rid, as much as we talk about getting rid of the guilt or letting go of the guilt, um, it's a great idea in theory. But I say sort of reclaim it, embrace it, because I think feeling guilty is an incredible reminder that we really care a lot about our kids, that we care a lot about our families, that we care a lot about ourselves. And so if I didn't feel guilty, it meant that I didn't actually give as much of a crap as I as I do. So my guilt reminds me that I love my kids endlessly and I would do anything for them. And everything that I try to do or that I fail at doing is because I'm trying to do my best for them. So I, I bathe in my guilt. I enjoy my guilt. But I don't think that when I say in the subtitle, get over your guilt, don't let it, don't be a prisoner to your guilt. I really appreciate that positive reframing. (laughs) And it's true. We are so much of what we're hard on ourselves about is because we're, it's coming from a place of wanting to provide for our children, like wanting to give them everything that we can. I didn't even realize how much mom guilt I had, which is ridiculous. Like I've had this podcast for five years now. You know, mom guilt comes up a lot. 
But now it's like hitting me so hard. And I just thought I was a cranky person. I didn't, I don't think I realized that the thoughts that were making me a cranky person were actually driven by my guilt, if that makes sense. It does make sense. (sighs) Part of that is I also have this what other people think syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so I need to get rid of, well, or acknowledge that part of the guilt. It's like I feel guilty because of other people. Like, I I need to figure out, like, who is this for, right? Sure. But I also think that that's just another indicator, you know, of you don't, we don't want to, our children, for many of us, for me, my children are my most important priority. And not to say I don't have other priorities, but they are what I live and breathe for. And I want to be so confident in the decisions that I'm making that either the guilt or maybe the judgment of other people because they don't believe that I'm making the best decision, that weighs on me because then I start second-guessing myself. And it's a rabbit hole, and it's it's can drive you over the cliff. And so that's why I just try to remind people, remember that the reason you're feeling this anxiety mm-hmm. or these nerves or this guilt or shame or whatever it is, it's because you want to do your best. And at the end of the day, having a parent who's just trying their best is worth more than any of the classes or activities or preschool or whatever. Loving your kids and wanting to give them your best and trying to, even if you're not always measuring up, is more than 90. It's 100% of it. Having kids who are loved is is what I think we all strive for and I think what we all should strive for. And that makes what you're saying also makes me think that it's important for my children to see the messiness and the process of life. They need to know through my example what it's like not to nail that. I was going to try to throw out some like ice skating term, a triple <laughs> soak out, whatever. That's where I like, would have gone. What, what they need to see is that we're all figuring it out in the moment and doing the best we can, and sometimes it's messy. What I hope to get better at is, like, breathing through that experience myself and not being so self-critical in the moment. Because I I want my daughters to see that I can be flexible and give a little grace to myself. Yeah. Versus seeing the— that's that self-criticism and the guilt. Right. Because a child, I don't want my daughters to grow up taking on that guilt for right. not nailing it perfectly. Right. And I think that that's where, that's where I feel parenthood is born. It's not in the easy, amazing moments that sort of come naturally. It's not in the wins. It's in the struggles and how we help our children navigate through them, how we navigate through them. And teaching them to be resilient, confident people. Because those are the people that sort of go on to have these amazing lives. Teaching your children to feel confident in their skin, giving them a strong sense of self, and allowing them to know that they can fail and recover. Those are the most—I'm a self-proclaimed research 
like nut. Mm-hmm. Um, and in everything that I've read, those are the that's the theme that keeps coming up. Resilience. And I met your daughter just a few yes. minutes ago, and she's a very confident, secure girl. So yes. you're, you're, I think you're doing, an, um, I think you're doing an effing awesome job. Yay! Thank you. Because you mentioned in your book that the your pediatrician calls your daughter spirited, and there's an excellent quote where you write, "Spirited is something people say when they want to politely tell you that your kid is a pain in the ass." To this day, my daughter is very spirited. Yes, it's true. It's true. And I say, I wouldn't have her any other way, especially in our sort of our current climate. I think that having a strong girl is, and raising a strong girl is a huge honor. And I want to raise her to be the girl when she's 22 and out in the working world to not take, you know, no for an answer and to be her biggest advocate and to not let anybody walk all over her. But at the same time, I need to get through junior high. <laughs> so it's striking that balance. Um, yeah. And I'm not, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have bad days and I'm going to have amazing days and just realizing that one day doesn't define it. That's good. I mean, I we'll see. We'll see if I actually apply that to my life, but it sounds good. It does sound good. I appreciate it as someone with a spirited child. Mm-hmm. Because also, you know, we get the brunt of it. And then it really goes up against our own type A controlling tendencies. Because my daughter has very particular ideas about what her hairstyle should be, what her clothing should be, honestly, what everything should be for her. Right. Like, she really wants to define uh, her own experience and I'm good with it 99% of the time. But, like, she cannot wear glitter, eyeliner, just kindergarten. Right. But, you know, that's a battle I have to have. Right. And it's, <laughs> it's, it, it comes down to, is she really fighting over the glitter, eyeliner? Or is it just, like, you know, play yard rules of King of the Mountain? She's just, you guys are both, you know, I'm a very, I, I'm a, I'm a, controlling person. I like things how I want them to be. And my daughter is, you know, very similar, Mm -hmm. has her own, has from the moment she was born, had her own ideas about how our life together would look. (laughs) And it was, it has been, I've had to bend to her needs quite Uh often. Um, But it is, it's, 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 I find that raising myself is a very challenging thing and I'm raising myself with her. Um, Same. And it's, it's, Coming, and you're forced to go face to face with a lot of my own issues. I guess definitely things that maybe I have, you know, things from my childhood or my adolescence or even my young adulthood that I I'm coming face to face with, and I'm excited for her for, but I'm terrified for her for, and all of these things. And it's sort of it's a reckoning in a lot of ways, definitely, and trying to prepare them, prepare her in ways that. I was prepared and I'm confident about that I feel really ill-prepared for and I want her to have a better experience. And, you know, speaking of our spirited children and the type A-ness that we both share, and I think a lot of my listeners have that as well. You know, we've had multiple guests on who went to graduate school with their newborns. You know, I hear through the grapevine who some of our listeners are and you're like, Ugh. You just know they have it together. Right. And 
I love this quote of yours. I couldn't make sense of my own struggle. I had managed to write a book in less than three months while overseeing our entire home renovation. I completed an 18-month graduate program in 12. I even managed to sneak into Puff Daddy's exclusive VMA after party in 2007. (gasps) Yet I couldn't figure out life with my baby. So why is it so challenging for us strivers? This uh, I have in writing this book and the catalyst for writing this book was the realization that the thing I wanted to succeed at the most, which was being a parent, I wanted to succeed and be a good mom, was the thing that I, for the first time in my life, felt like I was failing. And I didn't have the skills to figure it out. And so I started to look at why that was, why it is that I could succeed in my career and succeed in my education or succeed in my relationships. And I couldn't manage life with a baby, which is something that people were doing from the dawn of humankind. And I realized that, and I get I get an eye roll from my mother and other older moms and my, my sister, who's a, a generation before me, that I believe that Moms today have a more difficult time transitioning into motherhood than any generation in recent history because I feel like women today, for starters, a large number of us are having children later, which means we have more time to create our identity. My grandmother had twins at 19. My mom was in her early 20s when she had her first baby. And for to hear her say it, she's like, I didn't really have that much of an identity to give up because I didn't spend, when I had my daughter, I was 32 or 33. I spent 10 years creating a life for myself. And then overnight, I sort I was became the lowest ranking member in my own army. And that was, that identity crisis was just one part, one prong of this, this struggle. The second one, I think, was that women today... People today in general, and I've, I've, I've referenced this and I've looked into studies on this, we are a further geographical distance from our, our families. I from was, our native man. Tribe. Yeah. So far. Yeah. And my mom, when she grew up, she grew up on a city block on the south side of Chicago, and her three aunts lived in the houses all along the street and her own grandmother. So when one had a baby, everyone sort of pitched in. You, weren't, you were never—it's hard to feel alone— when you're not left alone. Mm-hmm. And so she had that support. And when she had her own children, she lived in a, in a duplex with her twin sister and her mom was down the street. So when I had brought my baby home in LA to a Canyon street with no sidewalks and I didn't know my neighbors and I was inside all day yep. and couldn't walk to a park and my, my baby hated the car seat and being in the car. So yep. it would be a whole stress because she would scream. And this, this, this. Mm-hmm. I was alone all day mm-hmm. in The third prong was the only barometer I had of what motherhood should look like was social media. And it looked like everyone else was nailing it. And my life didn't look like those those dreamy motherhood perfect Instagram accounts. And I felt like my daughter needed and deserved better than I could give her. And that created this, this, this spiral that I went down. 
Did you think when you were looking at the Instagram photos, like that those babies were having a great time? Because when I look at those <laughs> Instagram photos, I'm like, ah, oh, this poor kid just had to switch outfits 12 times. Yeah. And it's like in a Moses basket covered with like <laughs> lavender sprigs. Yeah. But at the time, you can't see the forest for the trees. Right. Right. It looked like my... Those babies probably liked being changed a hundred times. In my mind, those yeah. babies were easy babies. Those babies probably slept through their diaper well, that's change. That's probably true. That's what I thought. Yeah. I think you are one of the first birth stories I've ever read, which is weird because I've had the podcast for five years and I wrote my own birth stories and I shared them on the podcast. But yours was the first one that I think I've sat down and especially one that was about a C section. Mm hmm. And I was like crying in Starbucks yesterday. Oh my God. It's so beautiful and then and so funny. And for our listeners, there's a moment where the nurse asks you what you're doing or something, and you were looking at your reflection in the bassinet. In the it bassinet. was a clear, one of those clear baby bassinets um, that they have in the the surgery room with you. And I uh I looked away from the I, I looked away from the bassinet and the anesthesiologist asked me if I was feeling nauseous because I was looking up at the ceiling. And I said, no, I can just see the reflection of my stomach being mm -hmm. put back together um, in the side of the bassinet. And that was after your baby had come out. Yeah. And and I, it felt to me when reading that, it was almost like they were like, where did you go? Or like, where's your focus? Why is it on that and not on the baby? Exactly. And for me, that was such a truthful moment of what it's like in the moments after giving birth, because there's a part of us that sort of, or I'll speak for myself, there was a part of me that's still on the ceiling, right? Mm -hmm. And just sort of taking in all of this weirdness. Yeah. And I think there's an expectation that's put on us that like, oh, we get the baby in our arms and then it's all about the baby. Mm -hmm. And then when really it's like, no, there's like tugging and pulling and snipping. Yeah. And so you're still dealing with all these other weird things and it's such an out-of-body experience. And I thought that was so refreshing to read you share that like even just moments after giving birth to this precious child who you adore and have, you know, dedicate like your soul and life to, that there's still this like weirdness of like what's happening to my body right now. I mean, it was it was an incredibly surreal moment, but it's also I feel like so so often we look at pregnancy and birth as this child coming into the world when really it's there's two births happening. This child's being born into the world and we're being born into motherhood, which sounds kind of, you know, trite and cliche, but really it's, we're becoming this new person. It's, it's, we're moving forward. We can't go back in that moment. And so we're processing all of that in that moment and trying to wrap our head around something that we have no possible way of wrapping our head around. Um, you know, somebody said to me once, and it really resonated with me, when the moment you give birth, you as a woman are at the precipice of life and death. And it's these, these, the, these two, it is the closest that you'll ever get to that sort of like heavenly experience when you're on this earth. And it really resonated with me because it was, it was this insane, surreal, beautiful, terrifying moment. And I was, it's going to take a minute to process, you know? You know, we had an episode in uh, February of 2018 with Britta Bushnell. And she spoke about the mother's journey confronting the unknown. And she teaches childbirth classes. 
And what's really exciting about her work is how she brings in a lot of mythology and this idea of, like, we are on our own hero's journey uh, through that process. And when you said the thing about that you're closest to heaven, that was my experience with my first child. I had two unmedicated births. The first one, it did feel like close to heaven at the end. Like, there was such a relief. And with the second child, it felt like it was a four-hour birth. It was outrageously intense. I had never been closer to hell. Right. And so, but it is, it's like living on the edge. Yeah. Part of my, and I write this in the book, part of my my anxiety or my fear was that unknown. Like, what is was motherhood going to look like for me? Was it going to come naturally? Would that, you know, maternal instinct start flowing through my veins? Would it, how would I be as a mom? Would I have that instant connection? Like, would, would, would I love nursing? Would I hate nursing? Like, all of these things that I couldn't control. And I'm the type of person who likes everything very squarely in its box. And I couldn't control this. And so because I didn't have the answers to those questions, I just stopped asking them and just sort of tucked them to the side. And there was nothing I could do about it. Until we got there, and then I was, like, in the operating room and, and starting <laughs> starting to spiral, which I feel like, you know, in that position, anyone who's going through, you know, labor and delivery, there's those moments of, holy, you know what, this is, <laughs> this is happening. There's no way, you know, there's no, go- there's no going back now. Okay, going back to the identity loss that you suffered yes. with your first child— Throughout the book, you share the advice that that you also get from others about how, you know, slowing down is necessary. Take the time to take care of yourself after you have your baby, right? I give the same advice on the podcast. And yet, Leslie, you wrote a book, like, right after you had your baby. And I had my first podcast episode, like, maybe two weeks after I gave birth to my so it's good good advice to give. I'm wondering how much of us jumping back in is about not slowing down versus we know what f- fuels us. Right. And I think that that's, that's why motherhood and this postpartum journey is so unique to each of the person, each person who walks it, which again, sounds so lame to say, but it's true because what was going to fill my cup and give me joy was working on this project. And I could find that, I don't want to say balance because I don't like that word, but I could could find a way to navigate my newborn son and working on this book because that filled me. And at the end of the day, that's what slowing down really does mean. It means trying, taking the time to nurture the parts of yourself that were important to you and that you want to hold on to that you that were the parts of yourself that you had before baby and making them as much of a priority as you can in your postpartum life because if you all of a sudden rip away like I did after my my daughter was born if you kind of rip away everything that you held dear to focus solely on this child there's consequences to be paid with that and so I think that when you have a child you have to nurture the mother as much as you need to nurture the baby. You need to nurture this journey for yourself while respecting this journey for your child. And both can live 
together. You don't have to pick one. You don't have to wear motherhood like, you know, it's you don't have to be a martyr for motherhood. You can you can find the appropriate what works for you. You can find what works for you. When you said that about becoming a martyr for motherhood, I I think of like the insane amount of pressure that would be as well, right? If that was the the one thing, the only thing, like that's too much pressure on a human being. And so we must, we must all like remember what fills us up outside of being a mom or what, what was the thing when we were little that would get us really excited and like try to bring a little bit of that back in your life. Because in the way that like when you're young and in love and you or and become obsessed with someone, like that relationship will probably take an ugly turn because you're putting all your eggs in that basket and like a it can become perverse. Like it's just too much pressure to put on a little baby. Like we must seek outside I guess fulfillment, which doesn't sound right because then that sounds like external validation, but like something else besides our little one to make us feel like we're enough. But I, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with finding external validation. I think that like being able yeah. to go into a career and produce an incredible podcast that's reaching, you know, so many women that need it or to write a book or to do whatever and to find that you're actually, it's to find that you're actually connecting and having an impact outside of your home can be Mm -hmm. very fulfilling, especially for women today who are going into motherhood with those strong senses of pre-baby identity. It's important to continue that because if you just are expected to be a different person overnight, I can't imagine there aren't repercussions. I know that I felt them. And I think that, and I say this in the book, that I think the most selfless thing a woman can do for her child is to be selfish every once in a while because you're not going to be your best self for your baby if you're not taking that time and your baby deserves your best. How about your spouse? Let's (laughs) get into that. Your husband's one of my favorite parts of the book. He's got a lot of really great quotes. Mm. Um... I want to talk about the jealousy that can, you know, happen at the very beginning. Oh, yeah. Or just even, you know, now. It's a lot of stress on a marriage. Yes. The most challenging time in our relationship, and I met my husband when I was 20. So we've been together for 17 years. And the most challenging time in our relationship was the first year with our daughter. I, it was... We walked into this chapter of our life, I felt like partners, Mm -hmm. and it became, it became wildly clear very early that this was, this was my, this was my journey. And he was going to, he was going to pop in and out as he saw fit. And that's what I believed at the time. And not realizing that, you know, men go through their own sort of postpartum transition and kind of figuring out what fatherhood is. And Mm -hmm. to hear my husband tell it now, he just didn't know where to fit in. He didn't know which lane to get in, as he he says. Um, And he wanted to be respectful of me and support me, but he didn't know how. And there was, I could, there was only so much that he could do in those early days that he felt that did disconnect. Um, 
And I say to women that they do not feel bad if within those first, I say within those first three to four months, if there comes a time where you lock yourself in your bathroom and you look yourself in the mirror and you give yourself a pep talk about how, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do this by myself. I'm going to be a single mom. I'm going to leave. I'm going to do this on my own because if I have to look at him sleeping one more time while I'm up in the middle of the night feeding, I'm going to shave his eyebrows off and that's not going to go well for anybody. Especially me, because I'm going to be the one to have to look at him sleeping with no eyebrows for like the next. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of rage. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and I I write in the book, I say, I understand. And I really, in, in hindsight, I understand that my husband was going through his own transformation and the pressure that he had of now having to go to work and until I took on my next project, uh, support a family. And it, it, he couldn't misstep. Like he had a huge weight of, he was the, he was the, the sole provider for our family and had to make sure that everything was covered and cared for. And that was a huge stress. And he couldn't understand why I didn't see how much that was weighing mm-hmm. on him. And I couldn't understand why the hell he thought I cared. Right. Because, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm keeping a human being alive with my body. And she's like, I, like, I didn't, that, I, I say, that is a a ripe topic for discussion for another book, but it sure as hell ain't my book. Because they can't possibly, until you're in the weeds with it, especially if you're a mom who has carried your baby. Because I know adoptive mothers and surrogate mothers and all that go through their own journeys. But mm-hmm. if you've carried your baby and you're going through this process and these hormones and your body and all of this stuff kind of, colliding mm-hmm. in one very specific time frame, it is maddening. And all reason and logic for most of us sort of goes right out the window along, you know, right. with, in my case, with my husband's cell phone that I threw out the window, <laughs> which I did, 100%. And um, I was curious because you don't mention in the book, like, w- was it salvageable? Yes, it landed on <laughs> it landed on a cushion on our patio by the grace of God. Um, (laughs) But to this day, if he sees me mad, that cell phone is like, he's tucking it away. It's in his pocket. It's gone. so funny. He's like, and he's got like a really thick case. (laughs) That's funny. They're like, oh, is that for the children? No, it's for my wife. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) The shatterproof Uh otter case or whatever. (laughs) A hundred percent. But in my defense, I told him that if I had to run around like a chicken with my head cut off and watch him looking at the ESPN app, Mm-mm. One more time, I was going to snap. Yeah. And I snapped. You snapped. It was going to happen. You warned him. I did. I you did. You warned him. The, the other thing is, like, we have so little compassion for ourselves at that stage in the game, or at least I did, because I'm trying to walk this tightrope of, like, getting everything done and, da, 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 like, just to survive, that there's just no compassion left in me Yeah, to, like, be concerned for him. Yeah. It's really hard. It becomes, you go from thinking you're going to be teammates and my husband's, like, favorite tagline for our family is, like, we're on the same team. He's always, like, we're on the same team, babe. We're on the same team. But there were moments, there were dark moments where it just felt like, like, really? Because I feel like I am a Sherpa for my children going up Everest. And I don't know. Right. But, but he would be devastated to hear this. But And I shouldn't. I feel like I should delete it because it's like, but there were moments when I felt that way. It wasn't true. He's always been on my team and now here I'm going to 
try to earn right. it back. But and he's always been on your team. But even Kobe and Shaq didn't always see eye to eye very notoriously. And they were on the same team, on a winning, winning team yeah. for many years. Um, and you're going to have infighting. I think that's just how yeah. team sports go. And it's about learning your place and kind of with and that, that dance. It is a clumsy, not well choreographed dance, but learning it. And with my husband specifically, who is a saint, because I am not easy to be married to. Me neither. Um, <laughs> and... It really came down to as trite as it sounds to communicating him just saying, especially with my son, like, I know you want me to just know the answer, but I'm not going to know the answer because I'm so terrified that I'm going to get it wrong. So I want to ask you what you want for dinner, but I also know that you want me to just handle dinner. So I don't know where I'm supposed to go. And it was as simple as like, even though that conversation annoyed me in the moment, I knew that he was, he was trying he was trying his best to figure it out. And because, I mean, that's one of the things that I feel like I hear over and over again um, with my, with new moms is like figuring out dinner at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I would have, my husband would order it and then it would be wrong and I would blame him. Or if he asked me, I'd be like, I don't know. I don't have time to think about it. I don't want to make a decision. So that's my <laughs> example. Because <laughs> it's like he was damned if he did and damned yeah. if he didn't. So it was just communicating. And we had a a much easier time with our second there were not so so amazing moments, but I also think that he knew at the time I was writing a book about him, you know, that he, mm. or a book about new motherhood that he was going to be in, and he didn't. <laughs> that and he knew that his phone probably wouldn't last a second window toss. So. Right. Well, also, if he knew he was going to be written about, yeah, he might behave a little better. Yes. Yes. In the book, I do write because I talk about all the things that I was doing, and he reminded me, and I put this in an edit. So it's in the book that he now exclu- almost exclusively feeds our dogs. Yes, I saw that. So he's like, I, I own that now. Um, what do you do day to day to keep your trains running? That's a great question because my trains are always running, but it just depends on like which track, on which track, if they're on the track and at what speed. It's this crazy balance that we have as women to try to be everything to everyone. And I try to be everything I can be to myself, to my children, to my husband. And there's always, there is always something that's going to pay the price. I end up always putting out the next biggest fire, especially when I try to like plan my day within an ounce of, you know, an inch of its Mm -hmm. life. So some small things that I do, you know, some people are like, oh, I wake up early and I prep everything. Like, I can't do that. I can't do that. If I'm up early, I'm like, you know, reading news on my phone or checking emails or whatever. It's what you're not supposed to be doing. It's just to like meditate and like go drink a coffee and talk to my husband about life, which none of that's happening. No, Um, also my kids wake up. They can sense me having me time. Yeah. They always wake up if I wake up early. Yes, and I'm I'm fortunate that my daughter's in a phase right now where she'll come and look in the door, and then if I'm not awake, she'll go back to her room. Wow. So I just fake that I'm sleeping. I do that every morning where I just, like, I drop the phone and I just close my eyes, yes. and then she kind of tiptoes back to her room. It's, it's I mean, it's— No, a- I do the same thing. It doesn't—she doesn't leave, but I realize that I do the same thing because my daughter, Sabrina, she drew me in bed with my phone next to me because she thinks I sleep with it next to me, but really it's me pretending to be asleep with my phone by my side. That's amazing. 
<laughs> so clearly I do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel like if, I mean, there will be times where she'll come and she'll, sh- like, you know, shake me awake. And she was doing this right <laughs> after my son was born. She was doing it, like, in the middle of the night. And I woke up at, like, 2 or 3 in the morning, and her head was maybe two and a half inches from my face. And I screamed because I was, wasn't expecting it. And then so she starts sobbing because I just screamed in her face. But it was like, it's literally like, it was like a horror movie. Because it's like somebody, <laughs> like you woke up with a head floating next to you <laughs> in the middle of the night. It's like motherhood, it, like it's where all your nightmares come true. <laughs> but okay, so staying organized. One thing that I try to do, <laughs> trying to pull it full circle. I do a lot of big it's it's meal planning, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like, I do a lot of big batch, right? So it's like, okay. I'll go to Costco, because I can never get through everything that I buy at Costco, like, within the time frame I that know. it needs to be used. So, like, go and make—I found that both of my kids, there's this—they despise every smoothie except this one combination of strawberries, avocado, banana, spinach, and, like, agave, right? Okay. I package all of those— Put them in little Ziplocs. Okay, so you put all the ingredients together. Yep, all of them. For like a daily smoothie yes. bag. Yes. So then okay. it's already frozen too. So I literally just drop it in the blender with some almond milk or whatever. And like that's, that at least like tides them off so I can like make oatmeal or scramble eggs right. or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I try to do a lot of that. I'll get those big like cheese tortellini things at Costco uh-huh. and like divvy up like 15 in a bag and it's small, mm-hmm. you know reusable Ziploc or whatever, and put those in the freezer. And then those take four minutes to boil. And all of a sudden, I have like a dinner. And why do you separate like the tortellini? Is there a reason to separate it from the big bag into individual? Oh, because it's, it's for me, it's easier to store because I could put a couple. I have a deep freezer in my garage, which is okay. the best thing I ever yeah. got. Um, I feel so like I, if you go, if you have a Costco membership, you should have a separate fridge. A hundred percent. Impossible to fit it in. A hundred percent. We okay. have like a beverage fridge in our garage, which is I love really it. just the fridge. That I mean, was this is really before. like the California life. Yes. It's, Although it also feels like the Midwest, like in the 1980s or something, like everyone would have had. Yeah. I feel like if you have a, if your family that eats at home a lot and you're, mm-hmm. you know, I have two kids and my husband and you're, we, yeah, you need that second fridge. I don't know what's in ours. I'm, we might ha! have cupcakes from like Sabrina's last birthday. Oh, I 100% have them from both my kids' It's last in the birthdays. garage, but the problem is I have to get through all the crap that we, you know, because— Yeah, you, you load up. It's dangerous for me to get to that part of the garage at this point. But, That's fair. But I will. I'm going to get there. Now that the kids are back in school, I'm going to get—that'll be an expedition to get to the— <laughs> I'm proud of you. This is going to be a big moment. You know, my other thing that you should be really proud of me for is I've just started doing the steel co- uh, steel cut oats overnight. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. So and that's, that's pretty great. That's a thing. It's um, a thing. And and that's really easy. It's super easy Even to do. Even I can watch that. <laughs> but I feel like having those easy meals. Oh, and I got an air fryer. That sounds dangerous. I write, but it is amazing. It's like I've just, I'm, just aged out of that whole millennial kind of generation, but it's a very mm-hmm. millennial thing, right? Yeah, we're it's both like, elder millennials. Yeah. And I I got this air fryer, and you can—it takes just—it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. What, I can't, what do you make? Anything. I put everything in there, and it takes, like, because it's, like, a small, tiny oven— and it's like a small, oh, tiny convection oven. It heats up in like no time at all. So it's like I could put her dino bites or 
brought sweet potatoes or whatever, and it's within 10 minutes. So I was imagining like meal. a vat of oil. I was all no. wrong about what the air fryer is. No, it's because it fries with air. Okay. There's no oil. Like, I think that you, like, sounds so millennial. It, it sounds, because right. it's like such a made up thing. Yeah, and it's fried with air. Like a, like a spaceship. It looks like, <laughs> it looks a little bit like that egg thing from Mork and Mindy, which is yeah. fully dating myself, but okay. yeah. I'll try so, that. So, the, so those are, those are small things that I do. And then for personally, I just do a lot of, um, I'm very tactile. And so I, do a lot of to-do lists, especially mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Okay. I make a to-do list and I prioritize what I want to get done the next day. And I really try to hold firm to that as as best as mm-hmm. I can. Because then it's just, it also is that sense of satisfaction okay. at the end of the day of yep. like being able to check certain things off and that you got to it. Because mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of my most challenging things as a mom is feeling like I can run through the day and I don't necessarily know where the time went. So having things to point to is like, you know, successes, small mm-hmm. victories, all of that. That's a a big thing for me. When, when we last spoke on the podcast, you had either just moved or were moving to Laguna Beach from Los Angeles. Just, is it as dreamy as I imagine? And are the people as weird as on Real Housewives? <laughs> um, that's actually a hilarious question. In a large part, it felt like going home again, which... I spent like about four years in New York, and then I was in Los Angeles for about eight. So going back to, you know, even though it's a it's a coastal community, it's the suburbs, it felt a little bit like I was, you know, uh, like the prodigal son returning or something. Mm-hmm. And so I was anxious about it. You know, I had I had, had a f- few friends growing up who had grown up in a city. And I thought it was so cool, like, having a city kid when you have, like, there was a, just like, a, she was chic and, you know, there's, like, an edge to one of my, my one friend in particular. Like, she's so cultured and cool and mature. I was like, oh, that's so cool. That's what I want for for my kids. But ultimately, my husband and I, we had a community down there. My parents are down there. And for us, our quality of life, my husband really is a big advocate of public schools and he wanted a a smaller community where you know we could go to the coffee shop and people would know her or you know those those sorts of things were important to him sort of the more of those uh I guess like folksy yeah folksy vibes um so we moved down human vibes yeah yeah and you know where we were in Los Angeles like navigating around getting her to school going to Target, it was, everything was like an odyssey. And so it was a very convenient transition for us to like be down there and have a more of an ease of life. We spend some time in Michigan in the summer and I can't get over like, oh, you can go to Target and do something else in one day? Yeah. In Los Angeles, it's impossible. And I'm driving my two-year-old to preschool through Hollywood. It feels like the end of the world. (laughs) And it's like blocks away. It's really terrifying. I mean, not only with the bird scooters everywhere. And I'm like, people, can you wear helmets? Like, I am driving. Right. This is like, this is really scary. I have a screaming toddler in the back seat. People are honking because I'm not immediately turning right on red when like cars are coming at us. And the billboard situation is out of control. Not only are there billboards, it's like you might as well be in Times Square half the time because 
it, I think electronic, I'm such an old person. I'm like, the electronic billboard should be illegal. Like, how could they possibly have these huge TV screens trying to grab our attention yeah. while we're driving? Yeah. How is that legal, first of all? Second of all, the billboards are of these rated R movies that are so s- terrifying. And Sabrina's always the first to point them out. And it's usually like a dead little girl in a nightgown right. with a knife right. or something. Yep. yep, of course. And this is on the way to school. That Should stresses I move? me out. <laughs> <laughs> like, that stresses me out just uh, just hearing it because I've been out of the city now for two and a half years or two years. And this electronic billboard thing is newer. I didn't mm-hmm. experience it. And I'm, I'm grateful yeah. that I'm not. But at the same time— the the things that you have available to your children is so, you know, it, that's the, you know, that's the payoff, right? It's your, there's, for every great opportunity or reward, there's going to have to be some sort of sacrifice. And, no, you know, that's true. regardless of where you live, I feel like you're going to have that. Um, you win in some columns right. and you're going to, you know, there's going to be the cons in the other. No, it's true. We She did have an incredible opportunity this summer. She did a two-week camp. It was from nine to four every day at Yada on 3rd Street, which is where they were performing a musical um, at the end of the two weeks. And they got cast in it, and they practiced every day, and she learned every song in the show. And I feel like that was something that was unique to where we live, because they were miked. And it was just an awesome opportunity. But also, walking back to the car one day, she's really been on this kick of like, Let's pick up litter. And she turned around to grab a a plastic glove. Oh, no. From the back of, like, a medical center. You know, great mom move. We're, like, walking through the alley because it's a shortcut. And so she almost picked up this, like, I, like, screamed. And was like, <laughs> and she's Ugh. like, she's like, but mom, it's litter. We should. And I'm like, don't. No. If there's any, if there's anything, like, with medical, anything about it, don't touch it. Yeah. Yes. Do not touch that. That glove is so that they don't have to touch things. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't touch it. That's so funny. My my mom was actually just on the ride here telling me a story. She was in San Francisco with my nephews who are 11 and 13. And walking down the street one Sunday morning, saw a man on the sidewalk, passed out, had whatever coming out of his mouth. And my mom, they're like, "What? what's that? coming out of his mouth. What's happening? What's up? My mom's like, oh, he just ate something funny. I'm sure he just ate something, <laughs> having to like explain away. I know. But at the same time, having the opportunity for them to right. be like in the city and they go and San Francisco is such a a rich city of like culture and history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that com- <laughs> comes with the gritty. And that's also an opportunity of itself, like yeah. we, to learn about what is actually happening in America. It's just always a balancing sure. act of like, what do you share and what do you not share? And what, you know, I don't want to put too much on her little shoulders. And I'm looking forward to her school, hopefully helping us figure out what, when it's appropriate to have what conversations. Uh, all the time I have this, all the time I have this debate. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. It was a, like a Malcolm, the revisionist history. Mm-hmm. And it's usually pretty, you know, hard. she can't really follow or keep up. And it's never, like, really indulgent in, in language. So she was doing something, really looking at a book in the backseat. And they kept saying sexuality because they were talking about, I didn't remember what the episode was. And I was immediately turned it off because it's like she's 
going to be five. At what point do I start having these conversations? Mm -hmm. And these are words that she's going to be hearing around. You know, it's, I'd like to go back to my Midwestern roots and sort of just brush (laughs) that under the rug Mm. until I am forced to come Mm -hmm. face to face with it. That is the thing that I wish I had known with my first child, which is what so much of your book does. It's like, tell us all the things that you know, you wish you had known when you had your first kid. It's like you're arming new mothers with this information. And one I would add to is like, watch all the rated R stuff. Listen to all those trashy podcasts now. Yeah. My favorite thing was listening to Howard Stern on XM Radio. And then there was the day when I could no longer listen to Howard Stern. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Because that day comes. And then, because their little ears... I had a conversation with my husband yesterday because we were looking at old videos and of my daughter, and there's a video of her at probably 20 months old, and she's singing Much Too Young to Feel This Damn Old. And we're laughing about it now, and I was like, oh, we can I mean, can't, now she goes to school, she can't say these words. It just becomes like, <laughs> it's really funny to, when they say like inappropriate mm-hmm. words when they're small and there's mm-hmm. no consequences, but. Yeah, for us mostly. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Okay, well, Leslie, how can our listeners find you? They can find me at unpacify.com and at my Instagram, Leslie and Bruce. And yeah, and on amazon.com if there are iBooks or wherever good books are sold to find you are a effing awesome mom. Everybody, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And join us on Instagram and Facebook and our Facebook community. We love to hear from you. Also, special thanks to our sound engineer, Owen O'Neill, our composer, Jeremy Turner, and our production assistant, Olivia Hasty. All right, everybody, until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Mm-hmm.